I'm Brett McGarry. This week on The Couch Potatoes, I can wait no more. After it won Best TV Drama at the Golden Globes, I have begun my binge of HBO's Succession. I'll tell you if it's worth your while. Plus... I'm Jeff Braun. I'll review Little Women. Don't worry, though. No spoilers. It's 150 years old. <laughs> what is that, a Friends uh, <laughs> reference? Yeah. <laughs> I also need to offer some follow-up thoughts and perhaps even an apology Ooh. for my early review last week of Netflix's The Witcher. Talking of all you perverts, it was a big year... It was a big year for paedophile movies. Um, surviving R. Kelly, Leaving Neverland, Two Popes. <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. I don't care. I don't care. So we got to start by talking about the Golden Globes yeah. and Ricky Gervais, his fifth time back. What did you think? Ugh. I, I don't mind if he doesn't come back. I used to really like him, but and he had a few good ones in there, but... This thing he does where he's kept saying about how he didn't care and then talking about how controversial he is, mm-hmm. uh, that's just that sort of thing. Comedy is just obnoxious when you're so self referential like that. So, like, either just don't care and be, uh, you know, uh, controversial or whatever, but you can't keep saying, I'm so controversial and stuff. It's just that drives me nuts. And he did a lot of that. Do you think that that's just his character or the character that he's come to portray? At the Golden Globes is his thing. I, I guess so, but it's it's not as funny as he can be when he does his his dumb guy pathetic like Homer Simpson routine like he did on The Office. That's very funny. Yeah, this other stuff is kind of obnoxious. I'm surprised and shocked that uh, he mentioned God, but he didn't say remind everybody that he's an atheist because that's his favorite thing to do is tell people how he's an atheist. Well, well, and he says it in this clip here actually, which I really liked it when he said this. Apple roared into the, the TV game with a morning show. A superb drama. Yeah. A superb drama about the importance of dignity and doing the right thing made by a company that runs sweatshops in China. So, well, you say you're woke, but the companies you work for, I mean, unbelievable. Apple, Amazon, Disney. If ISIS started a streaming service, you'd call your agent, wouldn't you? So, if you do win an award tonight, don't use it as a, a platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg. So, if you win, right, come up, accept your little award, thank your agent and your god, and f*** off, okay? So... I like that too. Didn't yeah. work, but I liked it. <laughs> yeah, there there were a couple of uh, bigger political speeches. Ugh. Patricia Arquette gave one, and Michelle she always Williams. does. What's funny too is the Michelle Williams speech. I ended up going back to watch it. It was pretty emotional, but it was the one thing that I kind of ended up like just sort of skipping through because it was late in the proceedings and I had to get up for work like four hours later. So I yeah. just wanted to get on with it. But I could tell as I was skipping through it, like this speech is going on for a while, and the reactions from the crowd are quite emotional. She tends to do that a lot. Like she, yeah. she's good at speeches. She's good at speeches. Joaquin Phoenix is not good at speeches. I didn't even <laughs> pull was, the audio because it's, it was just so awkward. Who's the worst? His or Renee Zellweger's? Because she's not very good at it either. And she kept sounding like she was waiting for everyone to give her more applause or something like that. And it just wasn't coming. Like it's not like she was gone for twenty five years. Yeah. And that she was Meryl Streep when she left or anything. I mean, she was gone for six or seven years or whatever it is. And this Judy movie is by all 
all accounts, some sort of a comeback, but it's not to the degree that she seems to think it is. Yeah, when she said, uh, it's nice to be back after 16 years or whatever, and <laughs> there was just this kind of pause. Uh, so I would, if, okay, to answer your question, I thought her speech was worse because at least Joaquin's was unpredictable. It was, but it was just, it was awkward, but at the same time, I, I couldn't stop watching yeah. because I had no idea where he was going with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you sort of, he's the kind of guy that he could say anything, you know what I mean? Like, you didn't know what was going to come out of his mouth with Renee Zellweger. It, it just seemed so uh, rehearsed or whatever, and yeah. she's clearly just practicing for her Oscar or whatever. On the other hand, Brad Pitt, I thought, had the best speech of the night. Yeah, he, he was, was great. Well, and you, oh, you were excited, I'm sure, yeah, about yeah, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Absolutely. And he's just, you know, so calm, cool, and relaxed all the time. And then, did you catch the joke he made about, the Titanic joke he made with Leo DiCaprio? Yeah. He's just like, yeah, I would have made room for you on the raft. I was just like, what? That has nothing <laughs> to do with anything. I burst out laughing. It was really funny. And Leo even laughed. And he strikes me as the kind of guy that doesn't laugh a whole lot when people bring up Titanic. Yeah, and he laughed too at when Ricky Gervais made his joke about, you know, the uh, the movie was so long that Leo's date was too old for him by the end of the premiere. But back to Gervais and his political speech thing, I I liked that because I felt like Ricky was representing the average audience member who could care couldn't care less about what these actors get yeah. up on stage and natter on about. I mean, yes, some of them referenced the Australian wildfires, and that was important, and I'm, I have no problem with that. But when they get up there and they get on their soapbox, I just hate it. I can't well, stand it anymore. Like, sh- just shut up. The weirdest, like, it sort of makes sense if you look back into, the, like, the 60s or 70s or something, where that would be the only time that we would have had a chance to listen to Joaquin Phoenix say anything, period, outside of like maybe three interviews he did in a magazine or something like that. But in this day and age where they all got Twitter accounts anyways, you don't, they don't need to go up on stage and say that stuff. They they can send it out into the world all day, every day, as much as they want. And everyone who likes them can see it. Yeah. So I I thought Ricky Gervais, I thought it was okay. I liked his monologue, but the rest of the the show, he just seemed so bored. And I know that's what he was trying to put on. He was bored, but but as a result, I was kind of. (laughs) bored right like he he went i think he took that part a little too far i hopefully they bring back tina fey and amy poehler i thought they were the best they're always good at that yeah i agree i I like the tom hanks and the ellen degeneres parts uh i I don't think the oscars really do a lifetime achievement award on their broadcast anymore i think they give it out ahead of time kind of deal or whatever which is too bad because when it's somebody like tom hanks that's just awesome uh, got a couple other notes I was going to say. Yeah, uh, Netflix almost shut out entirely Marriage Story 1, Laura Dern 1, but the Irishman didn't get anything. No, the Irishman the was two shut popes out. Shut out? Well, the, the only other award that it claimed was Olivia Coleman for The Crown. Best Actress on the TV for The Crown. Yeah. But yeah, here's uh, as far as which movies and TV shows, here's a summary from ABC's Jason Nathanson. 1917. A surprise for Best Drama Film, 1917, beating out favorites The Irishman and Marriage Story, also winning Best Director for Sam Mendes. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood took home Best Musical or Comedy, star Brad Pitt winning Best Supporting Actor. I wanted to bring my mom, but I couldn't because any woman I stand next to, they say I'm dating and- on the TV side, Amazon's Fleabag repeated its Emmy success, winning Best Comedy and Best Actress for creator and star Phoebe Waller-Bridge, while there was a first-time winner for Best Drama. This is section the HBO series about power and money in media also scored Best Actor for star Brian Cox. Backstage at the Golden Globes, Jason Nathanson, ABC News, Beverly Hills. I'll tell you more I'll tell you more what I think about uh, succession in our next segment here. What were you going to say? I just was going to go on about how much I enjoyed that Fleabag one. 
yeah. which I have talked about before. And if you've never seen it, check that one out. I do have Amazon Prime, so I that's next. So I'm going to watch Succession. It's one afternoon. Or Succession, as uh, Sofia <laughs> Vergara called it. And then I will watch uh, Fleabag on Amazon. But 1917. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow's attack. If you fail, we will lose 1,600 men. Your brother among them. What was your reaction when that came yeah, out? Yeah, I was, I, I don't know. When Sam Mendes won Best Director, it should have popped into my head that maybe that thing would win Best Picture. I still was thinking that The Irishman would just win the Best Drama Award or whatever. But now I guess 1917 is a real threat. It's one of the few I haven't seen yet. I'm going this weekend, but uh, I... It seems like it should be, oh, all of a sudden it's an Oscar frontrunner or something like that. But the Golden Globes have a long history of voting in movies that just don't win Oscars at all. I, I did, I looked it up. And so they give out two awards every year, a drama and then a comedy slash musical. Well, clearly only one of those could win the Oscar. Yep. So in the last 10 years, there'd be 20, nom- 20 awards handed out by the Golden Globes. Only five have gone on to win Best Picture at the Oscars. So, oh, wow. So every other year, they pick one of, th- one of the two movies they pick actually wins. So it's by no means a done deal for either 1917 or for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I am happy that it won, though, in the sense that it's, it's the nudge to get me into the movie theater to yeah. watch it. Because when I saw the trailer for it, I, I didn't know... That, that this movie was coming and I was just sitting waiting for whatever I was there to watch and this trailer came on for 1917 and I thought holy smokes that looks intense and then you later told me that the mo- the entire movie is made to look like it's just one continuous yeah. shot like whenever you watch those scenes in a television episode usually they go like five minutes and it's always super compelling so for a feature film that's set <laughs> in World War One with real life stakes like that that's going to be Exhausting and explosions and stuff like stuff that would be a real pain to reset, and they had to do it, I'm sure, because you can't just do it once, anyways. But yeah, that's going to be. I'm I'm very excited to go see it myself now. And you must have been just thrilled with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood winning yeah. Best Musical I was, Comedy. I was, I was, I do, I was thrilled, but I was still kind of mad that Tarantino didn't win that Best Directing Award that Sam Mendes won. I mean, Tarantino won the Writing Award, but I was, I was still, I couldn't be fully as joyous as I wanted to be because of that. And I've got this great fear that Tarantino will retire without having won a Best Directing. Oscar, so it, it, it sort of fed that fear, but we'll see. I was, uh, you're right, I was excited for it to win all those other awards. Well, up next, I'll tell you what I think of the best TV drama, the first time winner. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett, he's Jeff, we are The Couch Potatoes, and with a big win at the Golden Globes, well, two wins, Best Television Series Drama and Best Performance by an Actor in a Television Series Drama for Brian Cox, I thought, I better give this a look. Everything I've done in my life... I've done for my children. I know I've made mistakes, but I've always tried to do the best by them because I love them. Have you thought about the possibility that your children are actually scared of you? Oh, f off. Succession debuted in June 2018 on HBO, and I remember seeing the ads for it and thinking, that looks really good, I will check it out. I recorded a couple of episodes, I just never got around to them, so I deleted them. But hey, if you've got HBO, then it's all on demand through Crave TV, so I've been watching season one this week, since the Golden Globe Awards aired, and so far, it is solid. We have a major problem. He's erratic, he's making bad decisions. If he's not careful, he's going to destroy the company. Emily, you gonna do something? I think I'm the best option. Oh, right, because you like playing boss? 
This is my vision. I take over. You two under me. Under you. Can we think about it? Yeah, of course. I thought about it. you. This family's broken. And that has consequences. Kick out the old man and with the new guard. Where you been? I was meeting about a prospective job. With your father's enemy? Disagreeing with dad is not treason. You want this enough to go to war with your family. Brian Cox is the patriarch of one of the biggest multimedia conglomerates in the world. And it's just about time for him to go and for his son Kendall to take over. But it turns out he's not quite ready to go and that creates all sorts of headaches for everyone. Cox has four kids. The two notable notable actors who play them are Alan Ruck and Kieran Culkin. And so far it seems like they all just pretty much hate each other. Gotta love a happy family. It's rebellion. Sabotage. Deliberate attempt to undermine my whole business. It's my company. You are a f***ing nobody. Thanks, Dad. So Succession also got a nomination at the Globes for Best Performance by an Actor in a Supporting Role in a Series. Uh, That was Kieran Culkin. And previously won a couple of Emmys. Outstanding Writing for a Drama Series. The dialogue is tremendous, by the way. And Outstanding Original Main Title Theme Music. It was also nominated for Outstanding Drama, Outstanding Directing, and Outstanding Casting. So, so far I would say I am enjoying Succession. But the problem that I have with this show is I don't really like any of the characters. They're all either despicable, like just outright despicable, or they're somewhat despicable. So far, the only one who does not seem to be despicable is, in any way is the daughter, who is played by Sarah Snook. That's a name you might not know, but she is an excellent actor. Uh, I would recommend a movie called Predestination, which also stars Ethan Hawke, and she is tremendous in it. She is a shining star in that movie, but she's only mostly been a supporting player so far in the series. I'm only five episodes in, so we'll see if she jumps to the forefront. Maybe she's the one to cheer for. I don't know. But uh, that's the thing. Like, There's no one to cheer for so far. I guess Kendall, because he was supposed to have the job, but he's being screwed around by his dad. But Kendall is also a jerk. Like, in his very first scene, he's sitting in the back of his limo. And is that with- Kieran Culkin? No, that's that's, uh, the the actor's name that. is Jeremy Strong. Right. He's like he's one of those faces that you you know yeah, the yeah. face you've probably seen him in something. Right. But uh, in the very first scene, he's sitting in the back of this limo and he's got headphones on and he's rapping to himself and <laughs> he's punching the seat. He's just an idiot. But maybe that's the point here is that there's no one to cheer for. We're just looking inside the life of this rich, entitled family and watch as they all hate each other and act like jerks and try to sabotage one another i'm also finding it i mentioned off the top of the show that i'm binging this show but i am finding it tough to binge i just can't seem to do more than two at a time and even that second one has been tough to get through that's not a bad thing though i mean some shows just need to be enjoyed at a slower pace and i am indeed enjoying it i just hope it becomes clearer whom i should be cheering for so if you've got hbo you've got crave tv you're looking for a quality show with excellent writing and excellent acting try succession that's awesome that's it's definitely on my list. I want to try to get around to that. So speaking of uh, binging stuff, I keep thinking, oh, I should 
binge watch all of Curb Your Enthusiasm before the new season starts, which is next weekend, by the way. Oh my God, yeah. But I have tr- I tried that in years past, and for whatever reason, Curb is too. I just can't binge that show. Each episode is like a full thirty for one thing, but as I also find by the end of an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, I'm just exhausted. Yeah, because that's just the way he is, right? He's just such an exhausting character in that show that it just it's like you know what, thirty minutes is plenty. It was hilarious, but I can't take anymore. Yeah, well, and that's that's good, and I think uh, that. There's nothing wrong with no. not binging a show because when you plow from one episode to one episode, if you get through an episode or a season of television in under a week, in some cases, like if, if it's eight episodes or 10 episodes and you binge it and you've done it in like two days, well, that, that, that was fun for that time. But by the time the next season rolls around, yeah, yeah. you essentially have to watch it again. Oh yeah, Almost, absolutely. To remember, or you got to find some kind of an online recap. I saved the binging for old favorites. Like well, I was sick over Christmas; it sucked. But I was just spent a week on the couch by myself from Christmas to New Year's, and I watched two and a half seasons of Frasier. Really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but I, I've seen them all seventeen times before. So I still, when it comes to binging shows, I still like if it's an act. If there's a lot of action. That's the kind of thing that I can binge through. But cool. Uh, yeah. So in a moment. We're going to find out what's coming to home video. A couple of Golden Globe winners actually are coming to home video. And Jeff's going to tell us about Little Women. You are listening to The Couch Potatoes. Welcome back to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Jeff. He's Brett. Taking a quick look now on what's coming to home video on Tuesday. My name is Sarah Connor, and I hunt Terminators. Enough of a resume for you. Sarah Connor, the day has come. I'm going to help you change the future. So you're Carl. That's what everyone calls me. I'm never going to call you Carl. Sounds like a Terminator movie to me, Dark Fate. That's right. Did you I, see it? I did not <laughs> go see this one in theater. It's the first Terminator movie since T2 that I have not seen in theater because I saw that in theater. Because my dad brought me and my sister, and because uh, you must have been well, it was, I think it was 1991. T yeah. two, 1991. I was 15. Well, I was like 13 or 14. Yeah. So, cool. uh, well, it was a uh, yeah, but it was parental accompaniment, <laughs> I guess, under 15, right? So, uh, I had to go with. Well, my dad wanted to see it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, I didn't go see it. It just got such bad reviews. Yeah. Well, it's coming to digital HD on Tuesday along with a few others. Uh, Harriet, starring Golden Globe nominee Cynthia. Aravo as Harriet Tubman. Edward Norton's Motherless Brooklyn. Uh, Antonio Banderas also nominated for Golden Globe. He's in a movie called Pain and Glory that comes out on Tuesday. And Parasite, made by uh, Bong Joon-ho of South Korea, which won the best foreign language film. And I saw it was a terrific movie. It's a hard one to explain. A rich family and a poor family. Their lives come together in ways that are very unexpected. Over on Blu-ray DVD on Tuesday, Gemini Man and Maleficent Mistress of Evil. All right, so there you go. Some good ones, some maybe not so good ones. This next film. Oh my. Is it a good one or a bad one? It is a very good one. I was quite taken with Little Women. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Not really. Women, they have minds and they have souls. And they've got ambition and they've got talent. You remind me of myself. We are never angry. I'm angry nearly every day of my life. But with nearly 40 years of effort, I'm learning to not let it get the better of me. 
And then they realized they were no longer little girls. They were little women. <laughs> Holy smokes. That is a solid pull. What season is that from? Uh, some, the, the good part, somewhere between 3 and 10. Wow. The good season. Fun fact, Mo Sislak's line there, uh, they were no longer little girls, they were little women. That's not in the book. The Simpsons made that up. I always assume that's how the book ended, and I always really liked it as a closing line, but <laughs> it's just fiction, I found out. That, of course, uh, the other clip, Little Women, written and directed by Greta Gerwig, starring Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Florence Pugh, and Eliza Scanlon as the sisters, with Timothy Chalamet as their neighbor Lori, Laura Dern as the mom, and Meryl Streep as Aunt March. Another fun fact, Greta Gerwig made some of the stuff up for the movie as well. Uh, we'll get to it in a bit, but if you've been avoiding this movie because you've seen one of the other adaptations, and you think you don't need to see this. This new one is apparently quite a bit different. The book, published in the 1860s, written by Louisa May Alcott, originally published in two parts, which is kind of interesting when you think of classics in that context. Lord of the Ring came out as a bunch of separate books as well. Just waiting a year or two or more to find out what happens with these books would be weird to think that those old books are rolled out like that, when nowadays you can just Get the whole thing all in one shot. Anyways, uh, so my context for seeing this movie was this. I've never read the book. I've never seen any of the movies or TV adaptations. I had no idea what the story was other than what they told us in the Friends episode where Rachel makes Joey read it. I will read The Shining, and you will read Little Women. All right, you got it. All right? Okay. Okay. And now, Rach, these, uh, these little women. Yeah. How little do they? I mean, are they, like, scary little? <laughs> They're not. Later in the episode, Rachel dropped some real spoilers, and I was dumb enough to watch that scene about an hour before I went to the theater, thinking that I remembered that scene well enough of what those spoilers were, but I had actually uh, forgotten most of what she says. I had only retained the biggest one, so she, I ended up with, like, three brand new spoilers right before I went to go see the oh, movie. No. Uh, but it didn't seem to matter too much because one is revealed almost immediately. One, I actually forgot in the intervening hour. And so when it happened in the movie, I was like, I was actually surprised. And then uh, one, you also sort of see coming a mile down the road. So it wasn't really a spoiler. But for the most part, I went in not knowing what to expect, and I was thrilled with what unfolded in front of me. There's clearly a reason why it's a classic. The story's about four sisters, Joe, Amy, Meg, and Beth, in Massachusetts around the time of the Civil War. They have trials and tribulations. Some have happy endings, some do not. Now, the book, and I presume many of the adaptations, have a straight timeline following the sisters from teenagers to women in their 20s. It's their coming-of-age stories. What Greta Gerwig has done, however, as played with the timeline, there are really two. There's the beginning, I assume, when the book would first introduce everybody. And then there's seven years later, after they've grown up, the parallel timelines run throughout the movie until the early timeline, at the end of it sort of meets up with where the second one began. So something big that must happen in the middle of the book is mentioned at the beginning of the movie and passing after it has happened to the characters. And then later, the earlier timeline shows it actually happening to the characters, that sort of thing. I found it very effective, although a little confusing to begin with, as I was trying to figure out who everyone was and all that. But by the end, the movie's just humming along and it, everything is hitting just like it should. And I was enthralled at the end of the movie. Uh, I, I spent like the last half hour just crying, happy tears, sad tears, all different <laughs> kinds of tears. I went to a weekend matinee. It was mostly elderly women and me in the theater. <laughs> and it, 
I was talking with a couple of them afterwards because uh, we were all like wiping our tears away while the credits are going and we're like, oh, that was just lovely. Oh, yes, it was. And it's <laughs> like, it was it was an interesting theater experience. Um, the main sister is Joe. She's played by Saoirse Ronan, who is great, of course, because she's always great. She's the tomboy of the four sisters and is sort of involved in a love triangle over the years with Timmy, Timothy Chalamet's Laurie and Florence Pugh's Amy. She's also the oldest sister and very concerned with keeping the family afloat, leading her to head to New York to be a writer at one point. She can sell her stories and send the money back home. This is where Gerwig also adds some stuff that apparently isn't in the book at all, and that's Joe's relationship with her publisher and the publishing of the book Little Women itself. It's a weird meta-commentary. It adds some modern-day feminism into the story. Some might find that's kind of sacrilegious to mess with a classic like that, but I found it in keeping with the tone of the rest of the story, and I'm also on board with movies that made at a certain time, reflecting that time, even if they're not set in that time. Gurig, by the way, says the stuff that she added about Joe and the publisher is a version of what happened to the author, Louisa May Alcott, in real life as she tried to get Little Women published. So there's all sorts of interesting backstory there. I recommend you, you look it up if you've enjoyed the book and the movie. And I mean, Quentin Tarantino, apparently not the only one who likes messing with history, and Gerwig is just as good at it. The publisher, by the way, played by Tracy Letts, you'll recognize him, he's a that guy. He was in Gerwig's first movie, Lady Bird, two years ago as Saoirse Ronan's dad. He also played Henry Ford III in Ford vs. Ferrari a couple months ago, and it really struck me in both of his current movies how he plays a gruff guy who's kind of like a jerk, but he still lets his humanity shine through, and in lesser hands, both those parts would be cliche and make you roll your eyes with just like a generic tough guy, like a, uh, just a jerk kind of guy. But with Letts, there's suddenly a three-dimensional character there. So props to that guy just come popping up in movies all the time and making them better. The, um, the movie is filled with rich characterizations and maybe a couple of thinner ones. Joe and Amy and Lori and the mom are all very clearly drawn. There's a lot of meat on that bone, but it seems like Emma Watson's Meg and Eliza Skinland's Beth are not quite as full, and I don't think that it's a case of what's there not being deep and rich, but more a case of it feeling like the movie simply can't include everything from the book. Again, never read the book, don't know how they actually compare, but some of the stories seem like they got a little short shrift. Saoirse Ronan and Florence Pugh's performances more than make up for it though Pugh is new to me I'd never seen her in anything she was in that uh, horror movie Midsummer last year uh, she really has the biggest journey as Amy who's the youngest sister and has the most growing up to do so the movie was two hours 15 minutes long it flew by in a snap and I wouldn't mind it if it was three hours long four couch cushions out of five for Little Women and you had a good cry oh I did that's good the theater it's a good the, the nice Nice uh, senior citizen lady. Plenty of uh, Kleenexes to be lent my way if I had asked. <laughs> it didn't get a lot of Golden Globe nominations or SAG awards, but it did get some other big guild nominations, the uh, Producers and Writers Guild. So uh, the Oscar nominations come out on Monday. Not really what to sh- sure to expect there in Little Women's Chances. It could go either way. I hope it gets a lot of award nominations. Up next, I have to somewhat recant on what I said last week about one of Netflix's big new hits. I'll tell you why in a moment. You're listening to The Couch Potatoes. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are The Couch Potatoes. I think I spoke too soon last week. And I I should have known this would happen because I'd only watched two episodes. I didn't even give it a chance. But I sort of poo-pooed The Witcher, the hit show that debuted last month on Netflix. Evil is evil. Lesser. Greater. Middling. It's all the same. 
So I'd only watched a couple of episodes by the time last week's episode aired, and I said I was kind of bored with it. I did say I was going to continue to watch it, but I was not fond of what I had seen of The Witcher. Well, if you missed last week's Couch Potatoes... Shame! (laughs) Shame on me, indeed. Shame! Not on you, on whoever missed last week's episode. Oh, (laughs) Shame on you for missing, yes, uh, one of our dozens, uh, the dozens of people who listen to the show. If you missed last week's Couch Potatoes, quick recap of what The Witcher is. It's a fantasy show, eight episodes, based on a series of books and video games. It's set in this medieval world on a landmass known as the Continent. So The Witcher follows the story of solitary monster hunter... Geralt of Rivia, who is played by Henry Cavill. There's sorceress Yennefer of Vengerberg and Princess Ciri, who find their destinies tied together. The first season is based on The Last Wish and Sword of Destiny, a collection of short stories which precede the main Witcher saga. So this first season explores the formative events that shaped the three lead characters prior to their first encounters with each other. So yes, yes, I was bored. But as Jim Ross used to say on WWE, business is about to pick up, and boy, did it ever pick up in that third episode. It was thrilling and intense and scary. It had crazy action, tons of action, actually, in the uh, remaining episodes, the last six episodes. And the visuals in this show are super impressive, amazing, sprawling landscape shots, great visual effects, and just overall some pretty creative stuff that I've never seen in a fantasy show. You know, a lot of fantasy stuff ends up just being kind of copycat of each other. So much of it is interchangeable, typically. A lot of them will have, like, the same sort of creatures, or they'll change some one little thing about them, but they even have the same name, like orcs pop up in multiple fantasy universes. But I can honestly say this show has created a brand new world that I had never visited. So I do like that. And I did say it last week. I'll say it again. Henry Cavill is awesome as the Witcher. He's a big, imposing physical presence. His fight scenes are tremendous. But I loved, loved his deadpan, grumpy delivery. When Phil Evandrel's blade kissed my throat, I didn't sh myself. Which is all I can hope for you, good lords. At your final breath, a shitless death. But I doubt it. <laughs> it's funny to listen to, but it's even funnier to watch because the change, not just in, in tone at the end, but the change of his face. Like, he just looks so disgusted. He's not just trying to be snarky. Like, he looks genuinely just how he hates everyone. So I like that. This show also played some tricks with the timelines of these stories. There are the three main characters, and at first you think they're all in the same timeline, but not so fast. And the way that it all eventually comes together is rather clever, so kudos to them for that. The ending of the season, though, is super abrupt, and in that final episode, Cavill doesn't get to do anything cool, which I thought was stupid. I mean, the show is called The Witcher. I wanted to see The Witcher do some witchy things in that last episode. Season 2, not going to debut until 2021, so a lot of people are mad or sad about that. I'm not. The Witcher is good, not great. It has some great stuff in it, but overall, I think it's just good. I enjoyed it. I'm glad I stuck through it, but it's not the next Game of Thrones, as some were hoping for. At least that's what I predict. And take if and like no need to rush, right? It's like take your time and make the best TV season you can make. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially with all the visual effects, like yeah. that stuff just takes a long time to do. I want to quickly mention as well. I was really into season two of You. I finished that. That's about. 
this guy who falls a little too hard when he falls for women to the point where he becomes like a stalker. He's a bad guy. He's yeah. a bad guy. His motivation isn't bad, but he's just, he does bad things. He's mentally unhinged a little bit. And this took a turn I did not expect. It <laughs> kind of goes who done it for the last few episodes. And then when that is resolved, it kind of blew my mind. And I really, really enjoyed that. So I would mention, or I would suggest to you, give you a shot if you've got Netflix. As well, mark this one on your calendar because it's coming out January 17th, season two of what was one of my favorite shows of 2019, Sex Education. Good morning, Mordell. Today, we shall be hearing from a sexual health expert. I'm here to start an open conversation about S-E-X. So that's Gillian Anderson. She plays this uh, sex counselor and a sex therapist. And her son, who's kind of a nerd at school, ends up becoming... A sex therapist for the students, sort of like under the table kind of thing. He's got this like secret practice. Because they don't want to talk to their parents about it. Yeah, they don't want to talk to anybody else. But for for some reason, word gets out that he's good at giving advice (laughs) about sex. And this was one of the most, I think, realistic and relatable shows about high school kids that I've ever watched. Even though it's British and the dialogue and the things they say are a little bit different. It's, It's a weird show in that... They, they like British kids, they tend to wear uniforms when they go right. to school, right? But they made this one more like they purposely made it look more American to the point where they were even throwing around an American football. So I think that's a little <laughs> strange, but I guess in a way it sort of makes it more. It doesn't matter where you're from because right. it's set in, I think it's shot in Wales. The, the, some of the, the scenery, like where Gillian Anderson lives, it is probably like the most perfect spot on earth really? to live she overlooks this river and is surrounded by forest it's just it's like she's a hobbit or something it's like something that uh, J.R.R. Tolkien would have created but I had so much fun watching that first season not just the main character is great but the supporting characters are all so good it's just such a good show so I can't recommend that one enough and it's a comedy so it's a quick it's a quick plow through You'll get through Sex Education Season 1, no problem. And then Season 2 debuts on the 17th. And that's all the time we've got. I'm Brett. He's Jeff. We are the Couch Potatoes. Remember, if it requires getting up off the couch, don't bother.